You're listening to the Write Project Podcast and Radio Program, a show about writing and modern Newfoundland author culture. This program is produced and recorded at CHMR-FM 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador, and is aired on other great stations in the province and elsewhere in the country. It can also be heard online at www.chmr.ca. I'm your host, Matthew LeDrew. All right, we have a very special episode of the Right Project podcast today. Uh, We are joined by Dr. Chris Lockett. Chris is an associate professor with Memorial University with specialty in contemporary American literature and culture, as well as science fiction and fantasy. We've got him on to explain a concept to me and to you called paratext. This came up, I asked Chris to come on, because I find paratext very, very interesting as a concept. My definition of it differs from his. My definition of it is all the text that an author talks about their book that isn't the book. So, like, J.K. Rowling's tweets, or whatever, or, or any time a author tries to tell you outside the text of the narrative what the book is about, does that count, does it count, should it count when you're doing a reading of the text. Um, but yeah, we've got Chris on. Thank you very much for coming on, Chris. Uh, first of all, what are you working on right now before we get started? My current research project are on one hand looking at basically 21st century narratives of uh, apocalypse. Um, So looking at the way in which we now tend to linger, we tend to focus on the aftermath of catastrophe as opposed to the spectacle of it. So things like, you know, The Walking Dead and Station Eleven and that sort of thing. That's really Um, interesting. Yeah. And uh, on the other hand, also looking at contemporary fantasy and sort of asking the question of why this genre that uh, has such firm roots, Christianity and religion generally, now tends quite frequently to articulate a very secular and humanist worldview. That's interesting. Yeah, your essays are so cool in the stuff that you do. I always wish that, as a publisher, that side of me, I always wish that I could, like, just take one of your essays and that could be the start of a From the Rock collection or something like that, where it's like, here's an essay from Chris, now here's a bunch of examples of people doing that. (laughs) Well, you almost had me do an introduction to one of those things, but that never came through, so maybe sometime in the future. That actually segues nicely into the reason for this call, which is we're talking about paratext. Now, you and I have very different definitions of paratext, but I wanted to get into yours first because it's the real explanation, and then I'll um, <laughs> then I'll be like, oh, I thought it was, and give my stupid, silly, I learned it from YouTube explanation, and then you can explain why that's wrong. <laughs> well, I don't think that we have radically different ideas about what it is. I think your definition is just much broader. Much, much, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we're, we're sort of, we're talking about degree, not a difference in kind. Fair, fair. The sort of strict definition, if you like, of paratext, it's uh, the text that circumscribes the text proper, right? So you have your your book, your novel, your whatever, and paratext is all of the ancillary stuff that circumscribes that. So you have, you know, like a foreword or an afterword, an index, an appendix, the title page, the publication information, footnotes, endnotes, you know, an introduction written by another author or by the author prefacing the story, you know, everything, including the cover and the publisher's blurbs on the back. Interesting. Yeah, and so paratext in that respect, again, is used to help sort of delineate what is the text, but can also be used to thematic ends or as a motif in and of itself. So you have, for example, a novel like 
this is fantasy, but a novel like um, Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov. And Pale Fire is basically a whole series of annotations of a 999 poem called Pale Fire. And the story of the novel unfolds in these increasingly unhinged endnotes that the quote-unquote editor has appended to this poem. Or you have stuff like, to bring it back to fantasy, Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, or Good Omens by Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, in which footnotes comprise uh, sort of running commentaries and jokes and gags and stuff all the way through. Yes, yeah, I, I really like that, that about that. that. Yeah, that's that's how I would. That's what I would sort of how I would define paratext. That's interesting. So I have to before I go into my crazy definition, I have a question or my expanded definition, whatever we're we're calling it. Not to bring it back to me, but when you were talking to about that, I remembered the first five books that we put out at Engine. I was couldn't figure out what to put on the back cover, so I literally put them quotes on the back from the characters within talking about the events of the book. So they were, ah. it was like they were getting interviewed. And those quotes weren't from the book. It was original text. Is that an example of paratext? Yeah. Again, it's circumscribing the text proper. Um, but in that case, you're you're sort of using it in sort of a more playful manner, right? So yeah. even though they're characters from out of the story or stories, it's still sort of extraneous or an- ancillary to, to the text itself. But it alters the text, which is interesting, which is what I kind of want to talk about a little bit when paratext is used to alter the text. So, like, these thoughts from Kathy on the back of my book, one of the characters from within it, don't actually exist in the book. So if someone were to read it, should that be considered part of the narrative to them? Like, if, if they didn't like the book, but then after reading her opinion on it, they're like, oh, actually, it's not so bad, you know? Well, it has the same function as the publisher's, or as the, uh, the blurb's publisher's book yeah. put on the book, right? It might incline you to read it. It might, you know, make you better or worse disposed to, you know, the book itself, right? So you read something and you think, oh, this is this is pretty good, and you look on the back and... You know, there's a there's a something by someone reprehensible praising the story. You're going to feel differently about the text itself. That's fair. Also, it can kind of serve as a warning online right now. That tends to be a thing where there's um like in in ebook sales and stuff like that where if there's graphic content, if it's a horror novel, something like that, you want to put trigger warnings on it. Uh, because if you, I, as much as I don't like doing that, uh, you do it so that people aren't taken off guard. Like it, it can, and it can actually increase sales oddly because it can affect, if people are looking for that, then they see trigger warnings and they go, oh yes, this. Yeah, but I mean, that can also proceed by other means, right? Yes. We, we sort of talk about trigger warnings endlessly, you know, pro or con, you know, I don't know one way or another. Yeah. But I mean, you do judge books by their cover. No, absolutely. Right. So, so like, if you go to, and, and we also sort of divide them by genre, right? So Neil Gaiman once said that genre is, what genre tells you is what uh, aisle of the bookstore not to go down. Yeah. Um, so if it's in the horror section, you know, there's probably going to be, you know, scary or terrifying events happening, but also you see it on the cover quite often. Like, the cover art is going to give you an indication of what's going on. And we've all had the experience, I'm sure, where we pick up a book that looks interesting, but there's no resemblance between the way they've packaged it and what's inside, and that sort of creates a bit of a disconnect. But, I mean, you know, the, the content is often uh, telegraphed in a variety of ways. One hopes. That is that is the yeah. goal. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, my definition of paratext was a bit broader. I learned it from an essay by Lindsay Ellis, but she was talking about author interviews, author tweets, for lack of a better word, author statements, things that you know about the author later on, which becomes an interesting conversation for me because I'm typically very death of the author. Like, this is the... the conundrum for me. So when Tolkien says that he doesn't like allegory, does that preclude us from reading Lord of the Rings as an allegory? Or is it one of those death of the author things where it's like, you might not have thought you were writing an allegory, but you were. Yeah, and see, this is where uh, I think the analogy to paratext starts to break down a little, because for one thing, that sort of thing is kind of ephemeral, right? So it's like J.K. Rowling saying after the fact that Dumbledore is gay. Yes. Um, and that might affect the way we go back and read it, except that, you know, there's absolutely nothing in the text of the Harry Potter novels to indicate that. We can infer it if we like, you know, and people project all the time, but when it gets right down to it, you read The Lord of the Rings and you think, okay, so this is obviously an allegorical representation of whatever. And there are, you know, allegorical aspects to that novel. There's not really any two ways about it. Sauron is pure evil, and that's so, you know, that he's an allegorical representation of evil. But you can take the author or leave the author in that respect, right? There's no authority necessarily that they have. They can give you information about how they wrote the novel, about their process, about sort of what they think of it. But in the end, they're, they're no greater an authority on how to interpret the text than very shrewd and astute reader, astute reader. And in some cases, I would say probably they lack objectivity, right? Yeah. Now, there's, there's a great line in Northrop Fry's book, Anatomy of Criticism, where he talks about the great playwright Henrik, Henrik Ibsen, who in the latter part of his career basically invented naturalistic theater with plays like Adult House and Teddy Gabler and The Wild Duck and stuff like that, and sort of transformed theater in the process and wrote these great plays. And earlier in his life, he wrote these long, overly romantic verse dramas. And at the end of his life, he was asked what he thought his greatest play was. And he said, oh, that was, he didn't say A Doll's House, he didn't say Hedda Gabler, he said Emperor and Galilean, which was one of his early verse dramas. And I mean, even Henrik Ibsen critics were kind of going, which one? Yeah. And Northrop Prize's great line is he says, all this demonstrates is that Henrik Ibsen was at best an indifferent, an indifferent critic of Henrik Ibsen, right? So, we, you know, we don't want to give the author too much credence in this respect, because, you know, often people write stuff and they include stuff that they didn't necessarily intend to. So we all go in with our various unconscious biases and we all sort of have sort of, you know, um, stuff that, that we're not, that we're, you know, blind to or oblivious to. And you can, and it's perfectly possible, for example, to create a racist story with having, well, having absolutely no intention of doing so. Oh, yeah. Right? Unintended you know, consequences. Of, so, I mean, you can take all that stuff into consideration, but to bring it back to our topic, I don't know that it qualifies necessarily as paratext. Fair. But yeah, no, that's that's interesting about the ability to create a racist story without trying to, and author's authority not need, not necessarily going to the text. I, I have to kind of, when we're about to publish an author, we always kind of prepare them for this, because if reviews come in, my, my biggest thing is, if someone writes a nasty review, don't respond to it, please. Um, whatever you do. And they'll always, some some of them, not all of them, will be like, well, no, but they're wrong about this thing. I have to set the record straight. And I'm like, no, but they're not wrong about it. <sighs> like, they, you're, you're just not the final authority. Whatever they read, that's the book to them. If you really didn't want it to be this, you should have, I don't know, thought about it more or just let it go, honestly. Just pull it out. Listen to your editor. Yeah, but sometimes it's... 
it's very, I mean, some people just aren't going to like the book, but some people read into things that you didn't intend, and sometimes there's no way to foresee it. Well, yeah, I mean, people are going to take from a text what they're going to take from a text. You know, sometimes they will come up with stuff that is so patently absurd on the surface, you just have to laugh at it. But I mean, you know, it becomes a question of, A, how astute is this reading? Like, B, is there a consensus that emerges about a text, right? So it's not necessarily just one reviewer. Like, if one reviewer trashes your novel and you're otherwise getting, you know, good reviews, then that's really nothing to worry about. To me, that's um, a good thing. All five-star reviews looks dubious. It looks like all your friends went and reviewed your book. Well, yeah. Mind you, you know, at the same time, if you're getting... And, and I'm not just talking about, like, sort of, like, Amazon reviews. And no, stuff, yeah, but, yeah know, absolutely. You know, but if, you know, your, your novel is getting consistently bad reviews, well, maybe you... <laughs> might want to take that into consideration. And, Maybe you, you messed know, you up. Did not actually write a good novel. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's entirely possible. I as someone who's written many bad novels, I completely agree. <laughs> Paratext is interesting to me in uh in the broader definition because of the way basically it's like should it influence how you read the novel, but I want to talk about ways that it can from your definition of it as well. But things like for me, uh, like the the Tolkien one is fairly benign as far as I'm concerned. The J.K. Rowling one with Dumbledore being gay that you referenced, that one's mostly benign. I, I kind of squint and like think it's having your cake and eating it too. Like you get to say you have a gay character without having to have put in the work to have representation in your text, which is like, eh, you know. Well, I mean, it was also, she it, She kind of, I don't know, uh, she kind of screwed the pooch on that one because she got uh, disapprobation from both sides of the coin. So you had, you know, ultra-conservative types who are disinclined towards Harry Potter to start with, but just saying, okay, well, that's it. this is proof positive that this is corrupting the youth, and so she gets condemned all over again. Meanwhile, on the other side, you know, the, the LGBT community kind of went too little too late. You know, it would have been nice if you'd actually put that in there. That would have made a difference reading these books as I was growing up. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, it, the book was written in 1996, and it shows, and that, that kind of stuff wasn't typically in popular fiction in 1996. Sadly, but you don't get a mulligan. You can't just erase it. Yes and no. I mean, they're, they've, in the Grindelwald films they made in the most recent one, sort of made it a, at least much more suggestive. Absolutely. absolutely. Showing that's, sort of flashbacks to young Dumbledore and Grindelwald, but... That's an that, easy answer, you know, prequels, yeah. And, and genre fiction gets to do that. Well, I mean, the, the one of the things that you that struck me when you first sort of asked me to talk about paratext was all some of this also just goes to the question of world building. So the Harry Potter world, to continue with that example, is fairly well circumscribed by the time we get to the Deathly Hallows. But now that we're sort of branching out into prequels with the Grindelwald films and you know sequels with plays like The Cursed Child, and so that gets to flesh out this this world. And one of the effects of that is you know J.K. Rowling says she always thought that Dumbledore was gay. That gets that becomes something that you can explore then. The paratext becomes text. Yeah, and it, and it, it it sort of builds into sort of the sort of iterative quality of this. How every time you go back, there's something new. You're fleshing it out. The world gets more expansive. But yeah, and that, but I mean that goes back to sort of the basic definition of paratext is that which circumscribes the text, right? The text that circumscribes the text. The one negative example that I, that always comes to my mind from the top of my head is Orson Scott Card and his uh, statements. Ironically enough, given we were just talking about Rowling statements, but his statements about homosexuals, which I will not repeat here. Yeah, he, he has some fairly negative things to say there, uh, particularly about their, their rights to marry and stuff like that. What I find interesting, it's my, it's my main example of 
something an author said making a negative reading or like an opposing reading of a text because when you first read Ender's Game, you could be forgiven for kind of thinking it's an allegory for growing up gay or at the very least marginalized in school. Like he's very put upon, he's bullied, through his own gumption, he becomes the best. But you could be forgiven for saying that it's about school bullying, and it's hard not to put onto it the most bullied people of whatever generation you were in, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, the Orson Scott Card question is an interesting one, because I mean, his reprehensible comments about uh, gay people, but as well as, you know, he, he in, indulged in all sorts of insane conspiracy theories about the Obama administration, was oh, know, quite prolific on his blog about how we can look forward to a future in which, you know, Obama unleashes African-American gangs as a paramilitary force to take away white people's guns and stuff like that. And I'm honestly not kidding. That was wow. <laughs> a future he speculated about. Wow. Um, yeah, and I mean, in that, paratextually speaking, the, the inclination is not to go back and read Ender's Game differently, which, for all of Orson Scott Card's reprehensible qualities, is still a brilliant novel. Yeah. Um, but rather to be disinclined to want to ever teach it again, because I don't want to put money in this man's pocket by getting a class full of students to buy it. That's fair. That's that's <laughs> that's quite fair. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where, like, the Obama comments, as ridiculous and reprehensible as they, they are, uh, and I hadn't heard them before, so that's shocking. As ridiculous as that is, it doesn't affect my reading of Ender's Game. It's one of those things where it's like, the, the Tolkien stuff that I brought up only matters because so many people read it as an allegory to World War II or to World War One or whatever. And the Scott Card stuff, to me, it only comes up because of how close it is to what the perceived themes of the novel is. So then it's like, can you read it like this, you know? I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, the again, and, and my thing with Orson Scott Card, too, is like I'm in some ways speaking from, from a place of ignorance because I've only read Ender's Game. I've never read any further into the Ender's world, as it were. If it wasn't and, putting money in his pocket, I'd say check out Speaker from the Dead if you can uh, steal a copy or get one from like a used bookstore <laughs> where it doesn't go to him. Then I encourage. Well, it. just yeah, I've I've heard from from individuals that uh, who have read further that it gets a little bit his politics become a little bit more apparent. I mean, I'm not sure, but not only that, that it just changes um, the narrative. Like Speaker for the Dead becomes about the character of Ender living on the bugger world and um, kind of like being the vessel for their history. Almost like feeling bad for the the race that he genocided, for lack of a better term, yeah. and is keeping their voices and stuff like that. Hmm. Which is interesting in a lot of ways. I never know what to think of Scott Card because it's one of those things where those horrible... When I read the book the first time before he'd said those things, I just took the name Bugger to be the name of bug creatures. And yeah. now I'm like, I can't stop thinking about the Bugger the slur. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I'm like, oh, please tell me that was unintentional. <laughs> like, Well, I remember the first time I read it thinking, it's like, oh, that's a weird... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a weird, you would not think that that would necessarily be the, uh, the word that people would go to to describe this insectile enemy, but well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and you would think an editor or someone along the way would have caught that and gone like, like if if I accidentally called a race of aliens a racial slur that I was unaware of, something tells me a publisher or an editor editor would catch that and be like, hey, yeah, you might want to not. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real interesting. So, what are ways? That's all the ways that paratext or the my weird 
kooky definition of paratext can influence a text, uh, and should it, should it not? What are ways that paratext can influence a text from the the more limited way, like the the forward, the afterward, in your point of view? Like, is it needed for analysis of a text? Is it provative, I guess? In a lot of ways, yeah. Because, I mean, in a lot of ways, if you didn't have paratext, all you'd have is just a, a manuscript, right? <laughs> I mean, would it, you, you know, a title is an element of paratext, right? Chapter titles as well. They're just the way in which chapters are divided. And that affects the way we read. It affects, the, you know, the way we read if it's, you know, a, a novel that has no chapters per se, just sort of shifting in, in perspective and breaking between scenes, or, you know, you have chapters that are just numbered, or you have chapters that have elaborate titles, or, you know, like, you know, the, the 19th century practice in some novels to have a chapter title and then sort of a list of the things that are going to happen in the, the upcoming chapter. Yeah, so I mean, paratext is sort of necessary <laughs> to, to show us, you know, what the text is. In terms of the way it affects the way we read, I mean, it's always going to one way or another. The question I find interesting is when authors uh, use it to thematic ends, right? So I, I gave the example at the beginning of this interview of, of Vladimir Nabokov's uh, novel Pale Fire, which again unfolds as a series of endnotes to a poem. And Nabokov himself was, he said in an essay or an interview, he, you know, he loved footnotes. He wanted footnotes to crowd out the text of a page. And when you think about how a footnote uh, functions, right, it's a digression from the body of the text itself, right? It's either sort of citing something, clarifying something, or going off on a slight tangent that's ancillary to the general thrust of the text. And more common, obviously, for us to to have footnotes in nonfiction. But when they're used in fiction, it becomes sort of a very interesting device in this way to communicate information and raises question of narrative voice. So who is speaking in the footnotes versus who is speaking in the main text? Is it there to augment what we know? Is it there to distract? You know, so there's there's a lot of very interesting ways that footnotes can get used in this respect, as well as you know, in, in to use the example of Lord of the Rings, the appendices in the Lord of the Rings, right? Like I I finished the Lord of the Rings twice the first time I read it. I finished it when Sam comes home from the Grey Havens and says to his wife, "Well, I'm back," and that's the end of the novel proper. But then you know, I was completely um, gutted to come to the end of the novel, so I can I read voraciously through the appendices, and I read, among other things, the chronology, which, you know, recapitulates the entire narrative of The Lord of the Rings, but then also sort of goes into the future, and so it says what happens, you know, what happens afterwards. So, you know, Sam becomes the mayor of the Shire, and, you know, he has more kids, and what Merry and Pippin do, and sort of what King Aragorn does, and takes us up to till finally the point at which Aragorn dies, and it said that Merry and Pippin are weirdly beside him, and Sam took a boat across the ocean, yada, yada, yada. And at that point, it was like, ah, now I'm seriously gutted because I've definitively finished. Please don't tell the movie studios that because they will make a Lord of the Rings 4 off of that material. uh, Well, except there's not really any conflict. It's sort of, this is, everything is good now. That did not stop The Hobbit. (laughs) It would be a very boring film. (laughs) That did not stop what they did to The Hobbit movies. Like, like, they're not being something in the text did not stop them. No, that's a fair point. But, I mean, but at the same time, that's not a bad example of what we're talking about, because a lot of the stuff that they used to augment the narrative in The Hobbit was dug out of the appendices of The Lord of the Rings. Um, so would that, that's paratext, then, the appendices? The appendices are paratext, yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, because I, I kind of always view that as more text that had Tolkien lived longer would have been further expanded upon, and which his son is kind of doing now. Yeah, well, 
and again, this is where we start getting into the blurry line between paratext and world building, yeah. right? Because, I mean, all of the, the editions of Tolkien's notes that Christopher Tolkien has been publishing, I think there's like 18 of them that he's done, are themselves sort of, they tell a certain story, so the fall of Gondolin, the children of here, and that sort of thing. And in, in, a, in and of themselves, you know, comprise self-contained texts, right, which themselves have footnotes and endnotes and indices and prefaces and all that sort of thing. And so when you, when you, part of this is how do we look at a book as a physical object, right? How, and does it matter? Does it, how does it affect the reading experience when you read the individual editions of The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers and The Return of the King versus reading them all as one massive sort of brick-like book? You know, how does that affect the reading experience? How does that affect the way we, we interpret the text? And so, as I said, you know, paratext has a very specific definition, but I'm, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to the way you approach it, right, which is to, to take in all of this other sort of ancillary information that provides commentary or, you know, material with which to uh, help sort of delineate and understand the text proper. And it's interesting that, that I, I don't with movies. Like, I, I know people that cannot watch, for instance, like a Mel Gibson movie just because of how reprehensible they find him. Like, they can't go back and watch Lethal Weapon. They can't watch... Uh, one of my favorite movies is Signs. People just get on me for that for a lot of reasons because they don't <laughs> like the movie and they don't like him. But yeah, that's that's been a question before when I've brought up, like, a good science fiction movie that tells, like, a, a low-key story and isn't world-ending stakes. I'll bring up signs, and I'll sometimes get pushed back. Ah, oh, Mel Gibson movie, really? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's an ass, but I, you know, that doesn't affect how I view the character. I just kind of think, oh, if only they'd cast someone different. Oh well. Well, I mean, that that raises a very interesting question as well, which I think is is getting a little bit away from the question of paratext. Oh, proper, big time. We start getting into, you know, and I've posed this sort of question to my students, and I'm like, would you watch a Woody Allen movie now? like knowing sort of what we do about him, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of people who are sort of tortured over this because they love Woody Allen's films, and they but they have difficulty getting back to it because of, you know, the revelations that have happened. Ditto for someone like Mel Gibson. Maybe you love the Lethal Weapon movies or something like that, you know. I don't particularly, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, you know what I mean. Whereas there there does seem to be a fairly clear dividing line for some people. Like, you know, it's like, would you watch the Cosby show again? No. Um, and I, I don't think I know anybody who would. No, and, that, one's, you know, that one's super difficult. And that's not... Heretics, right? No, that's, it's not. That, that's, I mean, it, it stretches the definition to meaninglessness at that point, but it does sort of speak to the kind of stuff you're talking about, which is all of this stuff that's exterior or external to the text itself, which inflects the way we view it or read it. Which is interesting. What it comes down to me is like a conversation about death of the author. At what point does the paratext that I'm talking about, the tweets or whatever like that, not matter because the author's dead. It doesn't matter what you thought. If you really thought this stuff, you should have put it in the book. And and that's always a weird stance for me because I'll want to say it for some and then for others I'll know there's no there's no firm line in my head when it comes to death of the author. I'll want to do it for Rowling and Tolkien, but then when Scott Card comes in, I have a much harder time. Uh, and I have I don't want to do it for Pratchett and Gaiman, but for completely different reasons. They're wonderful and whimsical, and everything they say I want to put into the text and make it more, just so that there's more text. Right. Well, and I mean, that's, to a certain extent, that's always going to be the, the, the individual prerogative of the reader. Yeah. Right? What you bring to a text yourself. Now, the question becomes when you, you sort of take a critical stance, by which I mean you sort of write something or you respond to it in a way that, that engages in a dialogue or a conversation with other readers. Then, 
very idiosyncratic interpretation of whatever it is you've read probably is going to get some resistance, right? And, you know, and so, like, it's it, the example I always use with my students is, is in literary studies goes by the question of how, uh, how many children did Lady Macbeth have, right? Because this is sort of an old question, because Lady Macbeth, rather famously in the play, when Macbeth is starting to have second thoughts about murdering Duncan, the king, she says she has nursed babies, but, yeah. you know, and she has known the, 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 uh, the tender love of, of nursing a baby, but she would not hesitate to dash out at the brains if it meant that, she, you know, they could ascend to the throne. But there's no other sort of evidence in the play of the Macbeths having any kids. And so <laughs> there's, you know, been arguments down through the centuries about how many children did Lady Macbeth have? Did she have children? Did they die uh, when they were young? Um, are they just off stage? Are they in another, you know, and, and but the point of it is, you can speculate about that all you want, but there is absolutely nothing in the play itself to say one way or another. But wasn't there actually a King Macbeth at some point, like way prior to the writing of that text? Well, there is source material that Shakespeare uh, used, but yeah. <laughs> you can't really... Um, no, uh, that's, that's the ultimate paradox. ...tie Shakespeare to a source material, because, I mean, then you're, you know, that way madness lies. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. That's how you get me, just completely insane. Um... <laughs> Yeah, no, I've used uh, Macbeth as a as a explanation on this show a few times before, where, like, to me it's madness that when we think Macbeth, we only think of the Shakespeare play, really, and, and the ancillary material regarding that, because there was a historical figure that that was him, that and Shakespeare added all these supernatural elements and all these fun, all the good stuff. And to me, it's like, what if in a hundred years, all we knew about Abraham Lincoln was that he fought vampires? <laughs> Well, that would be a very, uh, uh, I think, a premise for an interesting novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming okay. on, Chris. Uh, my pleasure. Have Thanks. a good one. Any last words on uh, on Paratext before I... No, I think we've pretty much hashed it out. All right. Well, thanks for coming on again. For all of you, we'll be here again next week at 4.30 Newfoundland time or online at chmr.ca. Please tune in and we'll talk more about writing culture in Newfoundland.